Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hey guys, welcome back to Thick and Thin with me, Katie Bilotti. It is a nice, steamy day here in Manhattan. I felt like I was walking through soup this morning. I went out early on a walk. You guys know I do my walks. My trainer is actually on vacation this week. Uh, she deserves it. She really works so hard. I'm happy that she's off the grid, but I do miss her telling me what to do in my workouts. So I've just been going on super long walks and attempting to do like little ab things. Um, this morning I went on a long walk and I also ended up stopping by a friend of mine. She opened a store here in Manhattan, which is not easy to do. I'm very proud of her. I met her through some school friends of mine and she opened a vintage like secondhand um, home decor store over on Mott Street. It's called Abode. If you go on Instagram, it's shop abode, abode with two B's. And she just opened over on Mott Street right by a little cupcake bake shop if you've ever been to the area. And she sells a bunch of like vintage stuff, secondhand, also like dried florals she does. So I'm actually going to bring a vase in next week and we're going to do like a dried floral situation in one of my like floor vases that I have. Is it vase or vase? I can never get that right. So paid her a visit this morning. That was really great. But like I said, so humid out. It's like you come in from being outside and feel damp. Like even if you're only outside for like 10 minutes, I got the coldest cold brew I could possibly find. And I was still like really struggling when I came inside. But luckily yesterday, I finally got a TaskRabbit to come in here and install my air conditioning unit. If you know, you know, finally got it off the floor. It's in the window now and it's literally night and day. I was being so stubborn this weekend and I'm like, oh, you know, like I can do it myself. It's so heavy. So then I like, gave up on that, you know, that endeavor that I didn't even attempt and I finally bit the bullet, called in a task rabbit, this really kind man, brought his like little toolkit in here and put it in the window. It looks beautiful. Well, it's like not cute, but like for air conditioning unit, it's cute. It actually has this like Wi-Fi connection capability where I can like be out and turn it on with my phone when I'm not here. Isn't that crazy? Like I can like <laughs> it's almost like when I was growing up and, you know, people had like the automatic car starter and I remember thinking that was the coolest thing because like it'd be really, really cold in Maryland and we'd be like in school and a kid would be like, oh, I have an automatic car starter. So he would like push a button and like his car would like start heating up for him. So by the time he came out of the school and into his car, it was like nice and toasty. And I used to be so jealous of those people with the automatic car starters. And so now I feel like I'm one of those people with my automatic air conditioning unit starter. So yeah, she cranks herself up while I'm away you know, I can like get prepared so it isn't just like left on all day because obviously I'm not trying to have a hugely expensive air or like you know, energy bill or whatever you call it, air conditioning energy bill. So anyway, AC unit is in. She's cute. And all is well in the world. I have some really fun 
vintage little pieces on my shelf. I got a new shelf from West Elm. You guys have probably seen it on Instagram. And I just got like really overwhelmed when it came because I'm like, oh, now I have to like put things on it. And <laughs> that's a whole undertaking within itself. So went to abode, my friend Abigail, she helped me figure out what to put where. She like drew me a little guide to like my shelf and like Honestly, she also made a really great point. She's like, you don't want to fill it up all right away because as you like go through life and like, you know, stop in random places and find little things or like go on travels places and you find things you want to like add to it and spruce her up over time. Like don't feel like you need to fill the whole shelf at once. And honestly, I kind of felt like that was a metaphor for how to live life. Like you don't want to fill up your shelf all at once. You want to like, you know, take your time and find things that are really right for you. You don't want to make a ton of friends all at once. You want to like, you know, curate your life in a way. I don't know. I think that that's like a, a really great, great um, mantra to have. A great way to spend my morning, everyone. And now I am sitting on my floor recording this episode for you guys. It's a really good one. Today we're going to start out with a Q&A, just kind of you know, answering some questions because I've been in the city now for almost how many months? Three months-ish. I've been back. So I wanted to answer some just like New York questions, some general life questions, really touch base with you guys. And then after that, we are going to dive into a story from history. You guys know I love my stories from history, especially when it's super time relevant to where we are today. And as it is June, which means it's Pride Month, I really wanted to do an episode where I tell a story from the humble beginnings of Pride. So where did Pride come from? If you guys don't know what Pride Month is, if you're maybe from a different country, and I don't know if it's a super, super widespread thing everywhere. I know it's huge in the US, obviously, for great reason. Pride Month honors the LGBTQIA community and pays homage to all the people that fought for gay rights. And, uh, you know, there's so such a deep history involved in where Pride came from. And there's so many events that spurred it on that, you know, people had just finally had enough in like the 60s time period and decided to fight back against their oppressors and against those who were belittling them. And being in New York City, you know, there has been so many events in history that happened right here. So I thought it would make sense to tell a story from history Right here in New York City, right here in my backyard, actually, over in Greenwich Village, there was a really formative event that happened in the 60s called the Stonewall Riots that was a very big charging force in what eventually would spur on the Pride Parade and the Pride Movement in America. And it's one of those events where I always thought I knew what went down and what happened and what it spurred on but I truly didn't know the whole story. And so I did some digging. I found out what really happened for the most part, because there are like many different accounts and, you know, some of the, the details are blurry. It actually happened in the middle of the night. Well, at like 1.30 in the morning, which if you go out in the city, isn't really all that late. Like some bars are open here until like 4 a.m. So it's like, you know, not that late, but still it's, it's pretty late for a police raid in the 60s. And there's a lot of like, certain details that we'll get into that I'm like, wow, that I can't believe that this was how life was in the 60s. Anyway, we're going to get into that story later in the episode. First and foremost, we're going to start out with a Q&A. Like I said, I just wanted to answer some questions. I want to, you know, feel like we're kind of like at brunch, guys. Okay. And you're like, oh, Katie, you've been in New York City for three months. Like, what has that been like for you? And like, you know, some nitty gritty questions. So that is what we're going to kick things off with. You guys have some questions for me or some things that you want to know, and I am ready to tell you guys. 
all the deets. How have you been feeling? Like really feeling? Okay. So (laughs) I was reading these questions and like kind of preparing myself for this episode over the weekend. I laid low this weekend because I do have a pretty busy week this week with birthdays. I feel like everyone and their mother was born in June. Like what is with this like June birthday month? I don't know, but I have like a lot of birthday related things. A lot of my friends also from LA are in town this week, like a lot of things going on. So knew I was going to have a busy week and laid low last weekend, meaning I really didn't see like anyone this past weekend. I was, it was really just like a solo weekend for me. I spent a lot of time by myself and you know, you guys can probably relate to this. Like I definitely am one of those people that likes to be independent and stick to myself. But when I have too much time, like there's a fine line. If I have too much time on my own, I tend to overthink everything and I tend to convince myself like, oh my God, I think everyone hates me. I think all my friends secretly hate me. Like, does anyone else do that where they just like over, over exert themselves like mentally when they're by themselves? So that was happening to me this weekend. And I was like, wait, am I even happy? Am I even like, you know, doing that thing where my brain is just searching for information. I've talked about this before. I think like a very old podcast, but it's one of those things that have stuck with me. And I always just consider this when I'm doing that overthinking thing, you know, our brain has this tendency to search for information or search for evidence rather to support our beliefs. That's just kind of how our brains have always worked. It's like, you know, when you're answering questions on a test or something and it's like support your answer and you're like, this is my answer and here's the evidence as to why this is my answer. And so this past weekend when I was feeling like down in the dumps a little bit, like I was pretty down in the dumps. Maybe it's because I started my period or something, but I was like pretty down. And I was like doing that thing where I considered, okay, this is why I'm, you know, alone right now. This is why I'm single. And I was like digging for all of these past traumatic experiences that have happened to me or past just moments where I felt down and just like piled them on top of each other until I felt really horrible. Like I was just starting to feel really sad because I was just over, over exerting, like I said, my brain. So yes, after being by myself for like the whole weekend, this week I'm like, oh my God, I need to get back out there. I need to see human beings because not seeing other human life, like I'm not going to say I was like in my apartment the whole weekend, but I was like, you know, I would go out for walks and there's like just strangers everywhere. I'd go to the coffee shop and talk to a stranger. And so I definitely was feeling a bit down this weekend, which is natural. I just want to say that there, it's natural to feel down every once in a while, especially when you're on your period. Like I said, um, that definitely is a contributing factor. But this week I am feeling ready to take on the week. I know last week I also expressed on Instagram that, you know, because Mercury was in retrograde, it still is. I was just feeling really unproductive. Also, it was like coming down from Memorial Day weekend. So I was like really having a hard go of it. And so this week, honestly, I've been super productive. I've been feeling Like my spirits have been lifted. I feel inspired. I feel like I don't feel like a super like heavy feeling of imposter syndrome, which I felt last week. So things are good. So to answer the question, how have I been feeling? I haven't, it hasn't been consistent. It's really been highs and lows kind of yo-yoing up and down of like, am I happy? Am I sad? And I think that's perfectly normal, especially coming out of a year plus long pandemic when emotions were really high for a very long time. And now everyone's like, oh gosh, how do I act? How do I, how do I live now? 
So yeah, in a nutshell, (laughs) it ebbs and flows. Okay. Okay. This is a cute one. What are you most proud of yourself for? Oh, that's a really cute question. Um, I think it's it's not often that we stop and we ask ourselves, like, what am I proud of about myself? Like, what what am I doing these days that makes me proud? And I stop every once in a while and decide, oh, wow, I'm proud of myself. I think that, you know, life is all about you find more confidence, especially when you focus on doing things that make you proud of yourself, like find more things on a weekly, monthly basis to do that make you proud of yourself. And like as silly as it sounds, sometimes if I like (laughs) go out on a Friday night and I wake up Saturday morning and I'm not hungover, I'm like, wow, proud moment. Like I'm proud of myself for like stupid things like that. Or when I have a day of like really great eating where (laughs) I like have cooked all my meals, which I'm not so great at. I've discussed many times in the podcast, cooking is a challenge for me unless it's like, you know, prepared meals or things that are like I, you know, I'm told what to do. Like I'm not very inspired by cooking, which is about to change because I'm actually working with a friend of mine, Dana, who is a health coach. So she's going to coach me through, she's not a dietitian. She's a health coach, meaning she's just going to kind of help me like get creative with meals and stuff like that and make sure that I like just kind of boost my confidence with, with making food. If that makes sense. It's like really honestly the best thing I'm doing for myself. Um, but you know, I'll get proud of myself or feel proud of myself when I cook a bunch of meals during the day and I don't eat out at all. Like I don't order anything on Postmates, which sounds like so uppity of me to be like, oh, I didn't order anything. Like (laughs) it's so expensive to do that. But what I mean is like just having the confidence to be able to cook, like I, cooking scares me. So like just doing little things that scare me like that really do make me feel proud of myself. But I guess overall, like what am I most proud of myself for? I think honestly, doing this internet thing for so long and putting myself out there for so long. Like it's been a very, it's been since 2009 that I've made like content online where I'm like fully peeling back a layer so you guys can really see me and really see like my hopes, dreams, fears. Like I've, you know, posted me crying over things. I've posted me excited about things. Like literally every emotion or nearly every emotion I am putting on this very public platform. And I'm very proud of myself for keeping keeping up with it all these years because it can get really overwhelming. That's why so many YouTubers have kind of like dialed back over the years because it can really take a toll on you. And I'm really happy that I've been able to, you know, monitor myself in a way that I've been able to, like, if I need to step back, I do. And I've been able to kind of keep myself intact the entire time. Like granted, I have had moments where I'm like, I'm not so proud of how I'm, you know, acting right now or things like, you know, I I get a little bit in over my head sometimes. My ego kind of gets big sometimes. Like I'm not going to lie to you. That's real human stuff. But I am proud of myself for continuing to be soft in this hard, hard world and continuing to be open and honest with total strangers on the internet. It takes a lot of courage and I'm proud of myself for doing that. So (laughs) that is my big proud moment. Okay, next, how to be patient during a season of singleness. P.S. I love you. I love you too. Um, Okay, how to be patient during a season of singleness. I think that's a really accurate way to put it. I think this summer is going to be a summer of singleness. I kind of had this realization when I was on 
a date on Friday night. I went on a date last Friday. Um, so that was like my one human contact of the weekend. I was telling you guys, I like didn't see anyone. He was the only person I saw like and really spoke to, um, which I don't want to be rude or anything. I think the date was fine. I think I'm just like not ready to date right now, if that makes sense. Like truly being honest here, like I was on the date just thinking about how I I don't think I want to be dating right now. Like I think this summer people are really focused. This is a general blanket statement for New York. Um, I think that people are pretty interested right now in just being free this summer and being able to spend time with their friends they haven't been able to do fun things with for a while and not be tied down and totally like cuffed, if that makes sense. And like with this other human all the time, like I, I think for the most part, this is what I'm feeling based on like what I've, you know, who I've been speaking with in New York. And when I was on this date on Friday, I was like, oh, wait, I don't know if I want to do this right now. Like, I think I just want to be single for a bit. And I've been single for a long time, as you guys know. But what's a little bit longer if it means not doing something I'm uncomfortable with this summer? Like, I just want to be able to spend as much time with my friends as possible and as much time bettering myself, you know, feeling healthy, working out, things like that, that I really love doing that make me feel great. So to answer the question, like dealing with a summer of singleness um, and how to be patient, um, I mean, that's just kind of like what I, that's exactly what I'm doing. So I'm right here with you guys. I might go on like a handful of dates here and there just to like, you know, remind myself that I can date <laughs> because going on dates again after not doing it for a while, you're like, oh my God, I feel like a fish out of water. This is like so foreign to me. So going on dates again, like going on that date Friday night was good. Like it was good. And I, I really enjoyed like speaking to someone else and like meeting someone. I really do love meeting new people, but I just like noticed halfway through, I was like, oh no, I don't think I want to date right now. Like, I don't think I want to. Um, so I ended up having to text the guy or not having to. I I did. I did a good thing instead of just ghosting like a lot of people do. And like I have done a few times in the past. I'm not going to lie. Um, so I was just super honest with him. I just said that I wasn't ready, you know, due to some and I just, you know, said some things. I don't even remember what I specifically said, but um, I was just honest with him. And I was like, I just am not ready to date right now, but I'm really grateful that we were able to meet and I hope to see him around. And, you know, I just I said it how it was. And I think this is the summer of saying it how it is. And I hope that I, I will say that I think a lot of people are going to get their heart broken this summer because, you know, like I said, I think a lot of people are just kind of hoping to keep their options open this summer and not get tied down because it is our, you know, our kind of our coming back summer, like welcome back to the real world. You know, last summer was a bit different, obviously, with everything. So I think that people are going to get their heart broken because they have these high expectations. So I think the key to navigating and being patient this summer is to keep your expectations level, knowing that people are likely not going to want to settle down right now. Um, obviously, there are exceptions here. And I'm going to say all these things like no one's going to settle down this summer and plenty of people all around the world are going to settle down this summer. And that is totally fine. I think I'm more so speaking to myself like, okay, Katie, this is not what you want. So relax, like <laughs> stop going on dates. If you don't want to date, don't feel like you need to do things just to do them, just to be exciting, just to have your foot in the door, like, you know, do what feels right and don't force yourself to do things you don't want to do. So, you know, I'm, I'm doing more of that this summer. This is the summer of not settling everyone, the summer of not doing things we don't want to do. 
And yeah, so summer of not settling, please repeat that to yourself. We are not settling for less than what we deserve this summer, than what we want this summer. We're not going to spend weekends doing things we don't want to do just because we feel like we have to. That is what this summer is not all about, I guess. So summer of not settling, repeat after me. All right. Okay. In the same grain though, of like the dating question, um, do you ever make the first move? I don't think I've ever answered a question like this before, so I'm intrigued. Um, yes, I often make the first move, honestly. Um, this past, I don't think I talked about this. I don't, yeah, I did not. Um, Memorial Day weekend, I think I told you I was staying in a house with my friend Adam. You guys know my best friend from high school. Um, so he knows a bunch of people from his college. We didn't go to the same college. He went to University of Maryland with a bunch of smarty pants. He was in the business fraternity. Like he is like a smart guy love Adam. And he, through his business fraternity, met some people that went to like Harvard, Yale, UPenn, like, I don't think they call it UPenn, Penn, whatever. Um, bunch of smarties. So I was in a house of smarties. It was me and all the smarties. I mean, I'm smart in a different way. Okay. <laughs> so we were in a house with like a bunch of people that I've never met before. Um, all vaccinated, obviously feel like I need to say that, but we were in this house in the Hamptons and there was this one guy that right off the bat, I like saw him and I'm like, okay, like, I decided I thought he was cute and naturally Adam like pulled me aside and was like, oh my God. And I'm like, that guy's cute. Right. And he's like, that's what I was going to tell you. We literally have the same brain. We have the same brain. So, you know, classic Katie gets some, some, uh, seltzers in her and hard seltzers and is like, I'm going to go talk to that guy. I'm going to make him fall in love with me. So I don't even quite remember what we were talking about. I like, think I commented on his shirt or something. Like I always just like fish. I go fishing for something to say. And it doesn't even need to be very good. Okay. By any means, but just starting the conversation is really all you need to do. And then you hook line and sinker, you make them laugh. I don't know. You do things. So <laughs> lo and behold, um, yeah, he was my like weekend crush. Every, I, everyone has to have a weekend crush. Okay. I love a weekend crush. And we come back into the city and like, Maybe I'll see him around, but he was my weekend crush. Okay. I often make the first move and really all it takes is just having, first of all, having the guts to do it. And like I said, it really doesn't even matter what you say as long as like just the act of being the first one to say something is really enough. Like I've had guys come up to me and like, I don't even know what they say, but the fact they came up to me and expressed any sort of interest in speaking to me, I'm like, okay, marry me now. <laughs> like, okay, kidding. But like, you know what I mean? It takes balls or it takes uterus. Okay. It takes uteri to go up to a guy and just talk to him. So I do it a lot. Okay. Anyway, I think that's it for the little like catch up portion. You guys have like, I think in this like little 20 minute chat have really gathered a lot of things from the past few weeks of my life. So with that being said, I want to take us back in time and tell you all the story of the Stonewall riots. So as I mentioned before, I watched that really great documentary that, you know, really painted a very solid picture of what it was like to be gay in the 60s because they had like firsthand accounts from these people that lived most of their lives in the closet, not because they were afraid to come out to their friends and family, but because they were afraid of losing their jobs, losing their livelihood, 
getting kicked out of the military. Like there were so many repercussions for being gay in America. It was not considered to be natural by many people. And things like conversion therapy were going on where, you know, very intelligent people thought it was possible to convert someone, like convert them out of being gay, out of their identity. It's interesting, like they were talking about it in the documentary about how like people would think that just showing a gay man pornography like and shocking them after like gay pornography and then shocking them with like a literal painful shock afterwards would cure them of their of their gayness which is just it's blood boiling just watching this documentary hearing these things but it really does paint a picture of what 50s and 60s America was like for the LGBTQIA plus community. So for much of the 50s and even into the 60s, if someone was found to be gay, was like publicly outed, caught by the police engaging in gay activity or identified by someone close to them as you know being gay in a public sphere, their names would often be listed in the newspaper. Like- it was it's heartbreaking it was like these people were were just broadcasted to the world as being different but in a bad way which they were just being themselves i i literally i could go on and on about this like my personal opinions on this obviously i think it's heartbreaking and horrible but to get the facts down homosexuality was technically legal in the state of new york in the 60s but it's interesting because while it was technically legal the quote, solicitation of homosexual relations was an illegal act. And basically all, you know, urban centers, so New York and a lot of urban places, but also establishments that openly served alcohol to gay customers were considered by the state liquor authority to be disorderly houses or places where unlawful activities are habitually carried out by the public. So basically you could be gay but you couldn't really publicly show your gayness or really be yourself in any way. You couldn't dress the way you want to dress if you wanted to dress in a different way than your assigned gender at birth. So there was a lot of restrictions on it. And thus, you know, gay people really did have to hide in the shadows for much of the 50s and 60s. And naturally, this causes some unrest. It causes some fear among the community. It causes people to deny their identities, deny themselves because of the fear. So let's talk about the Stonewall Raid in particular, the event that really sparked change. So it was a hot June evening in 1969, and above the city of Manhattan, there was a clear black sky with the biggest white moon you've ever seen. It was after midnight at the Stonewall Inn, which is a bar in Greenwich Village. So my favorite part of Manhattan, you guys know, I used to live over there. I really love it. Christopher Street is the exact location. And it's a really lovely area. So the Stonewall Inn was a buzz. People were having a great time. There was music, there was dancing, there was drinking. There was all the things, all the typical things involved in a going out night on the town. And then all of a sudden, the lights went out. The police busted in to shut down the bar and arrest everyone inside who was engaging in illegal activity, aka being gay and drinking alcohol in public. For some background, police raids of suspicious bars in the city were not extremely uncommon, especially amongst the gay bar community, 
But there was something particularly unusual about this raid, which we'll get into. But to back things up, let's chat about the bar itself. So the Stonewall Inn was considered and still is considered, now it's a landmark, a gay bar, meaning gay people could go there in peace. And here's the reason that this was possible. So the Stonewall Inn was a mafia-owned bar, which is what it sounds like. Organized crime families, aka the mafia, had a strong presence in New York. There are various different families, um, they, you know, owning or having some serious pull over many major establishments. So members of a particular branch of the mafia called the Genovese crime family saw a business opportunity in scooping up all of the gay bars in the Greenwich Village area. So Tony Laria, commonly referred to as Fat Tony, was a young member of the Genovese family. Tony and two other members of the family purchased the Stonewall Inn in 1966, which at the time it was a low-earning straight bar and restaurant. So it wasn't a gay bar, and then they decided to purchase it and flip it. So they bought the place in cash for $3,500, which at the time or I guess now, amounts to about $31,000. So pretty cheap for a decent-sized bar in Greenwich Village, um, even for the time. And so Tony and his brothers slash cousins, whoever they were, cheaply renovated the place and flipped it into a space where the LGBTQ plus community could congregate, drink, and dance in secret. And it was actually the only bar for gay men in New York City where dancing was allowed. So that's pretty huge. Obviously, Tony didn't do all of this, though, out of the goodness of his heart, or even safely for that matter. Tony was after a big payday and a good investment, which we'll get into, and he was able to cut a lot of corners on safety and hygiene since the bar was so hush-hush and very like underground. I'm cringing just reading this, but at the bar, bartenders didn't have access to running water behind the bar. Like, no running water. That's okay. So they often served drinks in dirty used glasses. Used glasses, guys. So later on, many gay rights groups actually blamed the Stonewall for a 1969 outbreak of hepatitis among its patrons. So it wasn't a clean place. The Stonewall also lacked a rear exit, which is really horrible in the case of a fire, as we know. So the the narrow front door was the only escape in event of fire or emergency, which is very unsafe. And the alcohol served at the bar, it was rumored to have been stolen or bootlegged, obviously, because it's mafia, you know, mafia owned. So there's definitely some fishy behavior there. It was watered down, but sold to everyone at top shelf prices, which honestly is pretty standard for New York. Even now, I feel like all the cocktails I get at like divey places, which I really love, like seedy divey bars, like really love them personally. Um, but I feel like all the drinks there are watered down and they're <laughs> they're still charging us like 30 bucks a cocktail. That's just New York. Um, but anyway, obviously conditions weren't amazing at the Stonewall, but nonetheless, it was a place where the community could go and feel somewhat safe, feel that like they could be themselves. They could be them, their true selves without judgment. So Tony was a sleazy guy, but what do you expect from a young member of the mafia? I'm not too surprised, but even less surprising is the following. In order to make sure they didn't get shut down, because obviously what was happening inside the walls of the Stonewall wasn't exactly legal, a lot of it, the, the gay activity, but also 
the bootlegged alcohol. There was a lot of things. There was also like prostitute solicitation in there, like just certain things that just were not exactly legal for the time. So to make sure they didn't get shut down, Tony bribed the New York's sixth police precinct which was super corrupt at the time, with around $1,200 a month to turn a blind eye to the goings-on at the establishment. So $1,200 a month back in the 60s would be about $10,000 a month today. So $10K a month to keep quiet. So that being said, that means that the the brothers, cousins, whoever owned the bar, the, the, the mafia group that owned the bar, had to come up with $10K a month. So how are they able to foot this $10K a month bill? Well, Here's one way. A historian, David Carter, found that the mafia owners of the Stonewall and the manager were blackmailing wealthier customers, particularly those who worked in the financial district of Manhattan. So they were likely threatening to out them to their coworkers or families if they didn't pay up a certain amount of money and them being wealthy and wanting to keep their secret, you know, under wraps, they paid X dollars. I don't know exactly the sums, but enough to keep these guys in business. Tony's family appeared to be making more money from extortion from customers than they were from liquor sales in the bar, which is saying a lot considering how expensive the drinks were. There were two dance floors in the stone wall, and the interior of the space was painted black, making it very dark inside, which was obviously intentional to disguise what was going on in there to keep things dark and mysterious. And the interior had these different light settings. So if police were spotted outside, regular white lights were turned on, which signaled to everyone that they should stop dancing, step away from one another, stop touching, things like that. This is why it was really unusual that the Stonewall got raided on this particular evening in 1969, in June. Whenever raids had happened in the past, which was pretty frequent, like I said, happening on average once a month for each gay bar, it was very common that gay bars would be raided. Um, but each time in the past, someone had always tipped off Tony and his family, hence the 10K a month payday, so they could hide the liquor and turn on those white lights, telling everyone that they needed to prepare themselves for the police to eventually bust on him. But there was no tip that night, no call to Tony. They were completely blindsided. At 1.20 a.m. on Saturday, June 28, 1969, four plainclothes policemen in dark suits two patrol officers in uniform, a detective and a deputy busted through the Stonewall Inn's double doors and yelled, police were taking the place. The lights and music cut out and panic ensued amongst the 200-ish people inside the bar as the officers pushed everyone into the back of the bar demanding to see everybody's IDs. All the while, crowds were swarming just outside of the Stonewall. People of all sexual preferences, gay, straight, etc., were curious about what was going on inside. So chaos is ensuing inside. Angry and curious crowds are forming outside. This couldn't end peacefully. Let's pause for a minute. So there are many other raids going on in the city at this time, once a month at each gay establishment, as I said earlier. So, you know, three bars actually had also gotten shut down. Like three gay bars had just gotten shut down in the area right before this. So why was the Stonewall raid so monumental and so important. Like what about this makes it stand out? So knowing what a typical raid was like, a typical gay bar raid would help you understand why the Stonewall raid was different. But during a typical raid, the lights were turned on, everyone was lined up and ID'd, which is pretty normal. You know, anyone dressed in full drag was arrested immediately. 
But everyone else was allowed to leave. Everyone who had an ID who matched up, like they were allowed to leave, whether the police had suspicions about their their orientation, whether they were doing something illegal or not, because, you know, the alcohol was stashed. They had no evidence. Like that was basically what happened. And at the Stonewall, on a typical night, it was mostly men. It was like 98% men. Sometimes women were there, sometimes lesbian women, sometimes just women, you know, straight friends of the gay men, like things like that. Just women in general sometimes were there. And if they were found not wearing three pieces of feminine clothing, they were also arrested. So that's another reason why someone would be arrested. Um, And this is really interesting to me. So at the time, you had to have on at least three pieces of gender-appropriate clothing. This was like a, not just a bar rule, I think this was like a life rule at the time, which wasn't actually a law, but it was like made a social law, so to speak. Like it wasn't even like written down anywhere, apparently. I found this out. In order to avoid being arrested for cross-dressing, you had to wear at least three articles of gender-appropriate clothing. So if you prefer to dress in masculine clothing, even as a straight woman, you could potentially be subject to arrest because of the way you dressed. I'm so glad that we live in a time now where you can wear whatever you want. I mean, aside from like some private high schools and like, obviously we still have some ways to go with the school system and like spaghetti straps. I know a lot of us have dealt with that in our lives, but for the most part, you can dress the way that you want to dress. There definitely are stigmas still to this day, but luckily it's not something that you're going to get arrested for anymore. And I can't believe that in recent history, this was something that was a thing. But anyway, so that was how a typical raid went. Um, And, you know, sometimes the employees and management of the bar were also arrested, but because they were in cahoots with the mafia, you know, things would, there were things like that where they would get them out of jail, whatever. There was stuff like that. But for the most part, it was pretty orderly. You know, it was unfair. It was annoying. But like I said, Tony and his family were always kind of tipped off beforehand in some way, shape or form so they could hide the alcohol, turn the lights on. People were prepared. But at 1.20 a.m. on Saturday, June 28th, 1969, this was not how things went. In typical raids, like I described a little bit earlier, Female officers would take people dressed as women to the bathroom to verify their sex and to check their articles of clothing to, you know, just figure out what their gender truly was. I'm using air quotes for that um, because obviously it's not politically correct anymore and it's really messed up, to be honest. But yes, female officers would take these people into the bathroom and figure out their their sex, okay? And they would decide from there which people would be arrested for cross-dressing or who wasn't. And so people who were appearing to be physically male and dressed as women would be arrested for dressing in drag. But this night was different. The gay community inside the walls of the Stonewall Inn decided to fight back. Those dressed as women that night refused to go with the officers to verify their sex. They flat out refused to go back with the female officers Men in line who were getting ID'd refused to produce their IDs. And the police was super frustrated by their lack of compliance because typically these things went pretty seamlessly. And so they decided to actually take 13 people down to the police station for questioning. Um, just really randomly, I guess they like just were like, okay, we're going down to the station sort of thing after separating those suspected of cross-dressing in a room in the back of the bar. So like even just people suspected, they were like, okay, you're getting in the car. We're going down to the station. So they were like leading people out into the streets. Like I said, there were crowds already gathering outside people curious about what was going on because like I said, this was not a typical raid. 
So Sylvia Rivera, who is a drag performer, a gay liberation and transgender rights activist, she was inside of the Stonewall at the time. And apparently, actually, I think there is a monument that has been erected to honor her and Marsha P. Johnson over by Greenwich Village somewhere. I'm going to try to look for it in the next few days. But um, this is what she said. She said, we were led out of the bar and the police cattled us all against the police vans. The cops pushed us up against the grates and the fences. People started throwing pennies, nickels and quarters at the cops. And then the bottles started. We were not taking any more of this shit. Someone in the crowd shouted gay power. Someone else began singing, we shall overcome. And as people were led out of the Stonewall and towards the cars, the crowd rallied against the police, throwing bricks and other things. Some people even climbed up lampposts to get a better view. And the crowd was wild. After typical raids, everyone would kind of just scatter and walk out calmly, escaping the bar and retreating into the shadows. But not that night. This night, they'd finally had enough. The gay community's anger and those who supported them, the allies in the crowd as well, was loud as they watched innocent people in drag being forced into police vans. The crowd that formed outside the Greenwich Village community was publicly making themselves seen and heard as supporters of gay rights for one of the first times in history. They were loud and they were proud. And this was something that really didn't happen at this magnitude and for this long in the past. And the police were not expecting this at all. Just nine of them about busted into the bar that night, but they were no match for the crowd of 400 plus people that formed. They frantically called for reinforcements and barricaded themselves inside the bar while people rioted outside. Like it got too rough out there for them to be there because like I said, they were outnumbered. So they literally barricaded themselves inside the stone wall and their barricade was actually repeatedly breached and the bar was at one point set on fire. The police reinforcements arrived in time to extinguish the flames, which luckily no one was hurt by the fire, and eventually they were able to disperse the crowd for a bit, but they were certainly rattled by the riot. They definitely weren't expecting the gay community to fight back like that because in the past, during raids, they were all pretty peaceful for the most part, aside from a few people that obviously acted out. But for the most part, past situations in New York City had been relatively peaceful and people just kind of like let it happen to them except for tonight this night in particular the gay community inside and outside of the stonewall inn decided enough was enough in 2019 so many 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 years too late in my opinion just before the 50th anniversary of the riots new york city's police commissioner james p o'neill issued an apology on behalf of the entire police department saying the actions taken by the nypd were wrong plain and simple. The reason why Stonewall was a huge turning point in the gay rights movement was because thousands of people were finally getting involved publicly. There have been many, many riots and things that have happened before Stonewall in various parts of the country and the world. But the reason why the Stonewall in riot was so monumental was because it was just, it was the, the magnitude of how many people were finally getting involved and finally having enough, basically. It wasn't the first riot, it wasn't the first big event, but it was the first major one heard around the world. The riot lasted a long time, three days officially, but some accounts say up to six days, essentially prompting a bunch of like smaller riots that happened after the larger one, some being in Washington Square Park, which you guys know is one of my favorite places. There's a lot of political and social movements that happen in Washington Square Park. And 
you know, it was this was noteworthy and different from previous. And it was the first event to get major media coverage, which was huge. The media coverage was a big part of why Stonewall was truly heard around the world. It got people angry. It got people talking and empathizing. It, it sparked the formation of many gay rights groups that are still in operation today. So why did the raid happen in the first place? And why were Tony and his, his family not tipped off? So it was out of the ordinary, as I mentioned. And so there's one theory as to why they weren't told about the raid. So it's been said that maybe Tony and his family missed a few monthly payments to the police or the corrupt police precinct of the time was actually hoping to get more money from them because they knew about the blackmail payments and the prostitution and the things that were going on in there. Just like they kind of theorized that things were going on. So maybe they were asking for more money. There's a lot of different theories on this. But overall, there was really no significance in the day or time of the raid or the riot for that matter. But obviously, it would go down in history. So there's really no like rhyme or reason as to why it happened on this very day at this very time. There's also some theories that like there was this election going on and the police were really cracking down because they wanted this one person to get elected. Like there was some things like that. There's been some theories thrown around, but there's nothing that is like, okay, this is the exact reason why. There's just a lot of like hearsay. It was that night strictly by accident. Author of the 1994 book Stonewall, Martin Duberman says, it was in the air, that is, rebellion, anti-authoritarianism, all that was in the air. The first official Pride March happened June 28, 1970, on the one-year anniversary of the Stonewall Riots. And today, the Stonewall Inn is a national historic landmark. The spirit that emerged outside a mafia-run bar in 1969 became the pulse of the gay community and inspired not just an annual parade, but ways to express gay pride in individual lives. Stonewall happens every day. Ann Bossom said, and she's right, the way that those of us who do not identify as being a member of the LGBTQIA plus community can truly be an ally, not by just like wearing rainbow or like supporting brands that turn their packaging rainbow during this month. Like there's other ways that we can help. So first and foremost is educating ourselves on the history of what truly happened. Like I've been to the Pride Parade, I think like maybe two or three times now. And while I've really loved supporting my friends in the community and, you know, being there for them and all of that and like really uh, appreciating the parade itself, not knowing that, like I just, I had no idea that the, the reason why it's held on that day is because of the Stonewall riots happened on that day. And so now that I know that, I feel like I am, you know, I'm able to empathize more. I'm able to just understand where people are coming from and just knowing, learning the horrors of what truly went on for gay people in early 20th century and even earlier than that. The conversion therapy, the horrors of that really has opened my eyes to, and even just knowing now the stigmas that still exist. They still exist to this day. And so educating myself on the ways that this happens in real life. And although it might be uncomfortable to learn some of these things, because some of these things are very sad, it gets me closer to understanding. Like I'll never fully understand, obviously, what it's like to be gay because I am not. But I, through learning, I can better empathize and understand um, what these people are going through as, as much as I possibly can. My friends and those of people I don't know. So educating ourselves also on the correct terminology, pronouns, you know, to make sure that we are 
making these these groups feel as comfortable as possible, knowing that we are taking the time to understand what makes them comfortable, what they identify as and and who they you know, who they are, truly their identities. So it's really important to take the time to learn those things. We can support fundraisers, of course. We can fund the groups that formed from events like the Stonewall Riot. We can amplify the voices of those in the community, among other things. Overall, you know, at the core of it, we have to understand that pride is not just rainbows and glitter. It has deep roots that really go back to a lot of years of suffering for people that truly could not be themselves and they couldn't dress the way they wanted to. They couldn't love the people that they loved publicly. They had to live lives that weren't their own for the sake of just living. And it resulted in a lot of suicides in the gay community for many years because they felt like they will never be able to live their truth. And so I am really happy that events like the Stonewall riot occurred in the sense that they, you know, people finally had enough. They spoke out and amplified their voice and rallied for the future, for what we have today. And I'm really grateful for them and for the spirit that those people embodied and how now my friends and people I don't know that are gay can live their truths. And it really makes me happy to know that we're getting, we're going towards progress. Like I said, there's still stigmas um, in many ways, in many, many areas of our lives today, but especially in the gay community, I still do you know, see on social media. I follow a lot of people that talk about the hate that they still get for being gay or the fear of coming out still to this day, which is obviously something that happens still, even though you're, you're not going to lose your job for being gay, but you still like it's something that causes you some discomfort sometimes. And so depending on your family or your friends. So truly doing my part to listen has really helped me understand uh, you know, Pride Month a lot deeper. And so, yes, it is Pride Month. It is June. I'm really interested in reading more stories about the history of Pride, the history of, you know, LGBTQIA plus acceptance. And um, yeah, I'm really interested in hearing more. So if you guys have any stories you want to share with me, please DM them to me. Um, I'm really excited to see Pride in New York City again this year. I know it was canceled last year, the, the parade itself, which is on the 27th of June. I think I might have said the 28th earlier. I meant to say the 27th. Sorry. You know how like when something happens after midnight on one day, but it's like, you know, 1 a.m. So it technically feels like it's Saturday, but it's technically Sunday. Like it feels like it's Saturday, but it's it's like it is Sunday. So that's kind of the deal with the Pride Parade. So it's on the 27th, which is a Sunday. But obviously the event of the Stonewall riots happened on the 28th, but it was like early in the morning on the 28th. So th that's why the parade happens on the 27th, I believe. Um, and the first one was held a year after the initial event. So yeah, anyway, I'm very excited to go to the Pride Parade this year, knowing the, the details of the history of it. It's it's really special to know these things now. So I'm grateful that I was able to educate myself on that. And I'm excited to go with my friend Adam. You guys know my best friend Adam from high school. He I actually went with him to the very first Pride that I went to about like four years ago, I think. I was like still in college at the time. Um, but obviously, yeah, Adam is one of my closest friends. He is in the LGBTQIA plus community. And so it's really special being able to go um, with him and support him. Um, and make him see or feel seen and heard and all the things. So yeah, excited for this year. Hope you all enjoyed this episode. I was 
grateful to catch up with you guys. It was really great to chat and also tell you guys a story from history that not many of us know the full details surrounding. So check out the documentary that I will have linked in the show notes, um, as well as all the sources that I referenced for this episode. And I will talk to you guys all next week. Bye. Bye.